how did they maintain that? How they how were they able to continue to do that? How were they able to have us fight for a, a wage increase of one dollar from let's say nine to ten dollars an hour, fourteen to fifteen dollars an hour, or even nineteen to twenty dollars an hour, when the actual labor and output of our labor is closer to forty or fifty dollars an hour, if that surplus was not going towards shareholders who have done nothing more than taken the wealth that was passed down through generations through the exploitation of land, privatization of land, and how are they able to continue that social hierarchy because you bought your product from Walmart or Apple or you name it. All right, all right, all right, all right. What's up, what's up, what's up? Trev FM, another episode of Spread Love, Free Market, the podcast. And I'm glad you're here to join me today. We will uh, do do it again here. I will recap of our week of social media postings and all that other good stuff. So uh, thank you for joining and uh, let's get started. Why don't we? So where do we start? So one of the slides I posted earlier this week and I think it's a great way to start off this podcast, set the tone. I channel my anger into activism. I channel my anger into activism. Basically, murder of G.K. Owens, A.J. Owens, which actually happened not too far from here, about an hour and a half away from Spring Hill, Florida, where I'm located right now. And I, it was a series of a few Instagram posts that I uh, published that kind of expressed this anger that we have as a people, and even I would even go outside of that as a country, and finding ways to express that in a healthier way. And I realized that I do that myself through my postings i do that through my postings expressing my anger i also express my art through my postings and there's this thing i was also thinking about like i if you guys are following me you would see i don't get many if any likes on my postings but that's beside the point a first of all if i connect with one person that's really the audience that i need that will hopefully amplify that message and i do know people are viewing so that also is a form of connecting i just want to connect it's not the validation of a like or a comment is not really the point but most importantly it's a way to vent i i guess ever since i was um pretty young 21 i started writing daily journals and i've more or less expressed myself in some form or another on a daily basis since then so we're talking about uh, 30 some odd years of daily expression if not weekly and i will get an idea or a thought and i have to get it out of me my mind i just can't move forward until i get this out and it started with art and I put something out there and okay, it's gone, it's out. Now I can move on and I could grow. 
And the same thing with my activism. And I do express my activism in a form of art, which is in the text that you see on my postings, if it's not just art by video or art by music. It's all an expression. So the recent events that happened here with A.J. Owens, rest in peace, really kind of revved that that um, desire and need to express myself in what started to feel like an unhealthy way, started to feel like anger. And I realized that, no, turn that anger into something productive. And the, the platform that you are here uh, joining me here is Spread Love Free Market. And that was actually the platform that I developed over the course of time, over the course of the last three years, to express this specific form of anger into something productive, into something that we can act on as a people uh, in a practical way, and that can lead to radical change. CPR, CPR, my friends, compelling, practical, radical, and I think that was that was the 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 spark that ignited that post, which was, I channel my anger into activism. So let me go a little bit more into this unfortunate, tragic incident with G.K. Owens, A.J. Owens. And if you don't know the story, we had a young uh, lady who was a parent of four kids and three kids or four kids. I'm not uh, not sure. I, but one of her kids were playing in a lot that shared in a housing complex uh, by a number of families. And there was an incident with a neighbor who they were having recurring incidents with, a white neighbor. And in this specific incident, the uh, the white neighbor uh, chased the kids off of this lot that everybody uh, viewed as a shared lot. or Maybe it was on the border of a shared and not shared lot. Anyway, she uh, told the kids to get away. Um, this uh, neighbor, white neighbor, has a, had a history of uh, racist taunts and um, very aggressive uh, outbursts of anger, honking on a horn to... Uh, make it intolerable for people to uh, stay around, calling them, uh, calling the kids uh, the N word and slaves. This is a I'm quoting from what I heard on the media. And anyway, they so they left, but one of the kids had left his iPad at the lo location they were playing, and he left the iPad. So when he went back to retrieve the iPad, uh, he knew that the neighbor, the white neighbor, had it. He I guess ask for the iPad and any of inaccuracies, please feel free to correct or do some uh, of your own uh, research online. But um, the story I remember, the way it goes is that this white neighbor uh, threw the iPad and a skate at the young child, uh, nine years old. And I'm not sure if it hit them or not. One report I heard that it hit the child. And of course, a child would do what any child would do, uh, go to the mother and tell the mother what happened. The mother goes over to this uh, neighbor, this white neighbor, 
knocks on the door. The white neighbor fires a shot through the door, killing the mother. Now, initially they arrested uh, the white neighbor. And I'm not saying the name intentionally. I don't want to. They know who she is. We all know who she is. So I don't want to repeat the name. But this white neighbor uh, initially was arrested. The cops let her go. Uh, she uh, claimed stand your ground. And the cops claimed that their hands were tied. There was an uproar in the community. The civil rights activist slash lawyer, Benjamin Crump, came down and basically activated everybody. Uh, there were protests. And days after, long after it should have been done, she was uh, re-arrested. And the cops said, oh, the standard ground rule does not apply here. Now, the only thing is now, today or yesterday, yesterday, uh, she was released on bond. She was at least given bond. I don't know if somebody actually paid it yet, but I find that very, very disturbing in the that we have a neighbor that's terrorizing a neighborhood of kids shooting through doors in constant uh con conflict with uh, these other neighbors and i forgot to add uh, when she was arrested she was also uh determined to be suicidal so all of this to me, just feels like, why would you release somebody who was a threat to herself and to the neighborhood? So today I posted on social media again, channeling my anger into something constructive. I posted the following. The relationship between the handling of the racist murderer of A.J. Owens and capitalism in a paragraph. So I'm going to give you how I feel about the tie drawing a straight line between capitalism and uh, the relationship of how they handle this specific case, which will apply to other similar cases. And I wrote, every time the system allows for the preferential indifferent or the celebration of white violence perpetrated against black bodies, it sends a message that everyone, white, Asian, Latin, and even black neighbors, stand to benefit if they align themselves along racial lines instead of class lines. The message sent is that white is right, instead of the actual narrative of class exploitation by the 1% who just happen to be white. How convenient. And I ended with uh, rest in power. A.J. Owens. So and this is something that I learned over the last three years. We uh, read a book that I have here. Some of us really picked up a lot of, of the, the verbalization of what it is that's happening in incidents like this and overall in our economies, in our political structures. And that is... Uh, one of the, uh, and we actually interviewed Heather on a different podcast that I launched um, during the uh, the social uh, uprest and uh, unrest in the 2020. 
we interviewed Heather McGee, the some of us, grab it if you can. And one of the things that stood out to me that she mentioned is this, this um, dynamic phenomena called, phenomenon called last place aversion. And in a nutshell, they make you as a group based on the color not want to be like us people of color because you don't want to whether even if you're not at the top of the social hierarchy you rather be in the middle and be a victim of oppression than be in last place and have other groups point to you and say that we are better than you in a social hierarchical oppressive state that we are in. So by having that scapegoat, you have a way of keeping the social order. You also have a way of distracting from the actual uh, purveyors, perpetrators of the economic oppression, the economic divide. And instead of holding the, those who are most accountable for the shrinking middle class, most accountable for the, the distribu uh, inequitable distribution of wealth, instead of having those who are most accountable for the legislative uh, acts uh, like uh, like the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, Citizens United, et cetera, et cetera, instead of looking to them and say that they are the ones that should be held accountable, you now look at those who are socially deemed to be on the bottom of the social hierarchy and you say they are the ones who are uh, should be held accountable. And therefore, we have the social approval and the privilege of doing harm to those people because they their lives are less valued so um yeah so i i really wanted to get that out as something i have to we have to beat that drum uh, so that there it will be change and i also commented on ways in which we can change this, change this social hierarchy. And let me look at my phone because I forgot to put it, write it down here. But um, so uh, I wrote the benefit for aligning along racial lines is relative and immediate, while the negative impact for aligning along class lines is long-term and absolute. The solution, defund the 1% by doing your level best to support local economies. The more local, the better. And this may seem kind of far-fetched, like you're basically telling me to shop local to stop racism. And yes, I am basically telling you to defund the 1% to shop local because as wealth goes to Wall Street, to those in power, we in the community give up our power to them and we give up our power to affect the type of change that we need to close the wealth gap. So if you buy from a box a chain like Walmart or you name it, Home Depot, 
that's money that's going to shareholders. If you uh, listen to the past couple of episodes and we spoke about the inequities and how the surplus, how the abuse of workers in the factories, et cetera, et cetera, how the wages are so low and all those um, hours of time is going towards the shareholder as opposed to towards the community. How do they maintain that? How they how are they able to continue to do that? How are they able to have us fight for a, a wage increase of one dollar from let's say nine to ten dollars an hour, fourteen to fifteen dollars an hour, or even nineteen to twenty dollars an hour, when the actual labor and output of our labor is closer to forty or fifty dollars an hour, if that surplus was not going towards shareholders who have done nothing more than taken the wealth that was passed down through generations through the exploitation of land, privatization of land, and how uh, they able to continue that social hierarchy because you bought your product from Walmart or Apple or you name it. So this is a world that we are so kind of intertwined with that, no, we can't, we can't cold break or break cold turkey from this world but we do have a i do recommend that we do our level best do our level best to support local businesses when we can and of course uh, this is what we this is the platform we've created at spread love free market uh, to support local economies and to do it in a way that is progressive uh, that is uh, cutting edge of technology, the cutting edge of technology that uh, looks at different ways to redefine, to distribute, and uh, to, to, to share, to redefine, to distribute, and to evaluate what it is, how it is that we view wealth, how it is that we value ourselves. So, um, I went on a little bit long but with this introduction, but I think it's important and I um, hope that we can, if not do something every day, but whenever you can in terms of supporting and amplifying your local BIPOC uh, sustainable businesses. Another post that I had earlier this week is let me just check something really quickly here was let me get some water here i asked a question i I gave an example on instagram uh, of what wage slavery looks like we spoke about this in past episodes in regards to Karl marx and his ideas about wage slavery and again i like to stress this at any chance i get that we are not, in terms of spread love FM, we are no ism and no ist. We are not uh, capitalists. We are not uh, 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 communists. We are not uh, socialists. We are just following our moral compass. If there's anything that you would like to neighbor us, if there's anything that you would like to label spread love FM or me, myself, it's a naturalist. I believe in Mother Earth, and I think she provides a blueprint for how we should engage with our community. I think we do have a different role to play in that we have different skills as humans, 
and that we can work in a more communal way and that we do have a, a responsibility to progress the human race. And um, I think that uh, when we see something that makes sense, follow our gut, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I have been following, I have been um, attending my family morning uh, prayer meetings. I'm not religious as well as another one of the isto-isms that I am not. But I've been, I mentioned this last, uh, last episode that they have been spending three years going through every chapter of the Bible. And I started last week to take a ride with them. Uh, not because I want to be converted, but because I wanted to see that if my interpretation of our moral compass, which is that you look to nature as a blueprint for how we should conduct ourselves as humans, if that can be applied through the two, to the interpretations found in the Bible. And so far, I would say, so far, yes. But I've only read maybe three or four chapters, so got a long way to go. Anyway, so where was I? I kind of lost track there. So, um, yes, I was reading this. What does wage slavery look like? I, I got off track and spoke about the ist and the isms. So I wrote on, in social media this week, according to Nasdaq.com, if you invested $1,000 in Apple stock 20 years ago, it would be worth more than $695,000 today. That was a quote from Nasdaq.com. And I commented on that quote. If you think that $694,000 in wealth magically appeared from investor value, as opposed to being extracted from exploited labor, then I've got an island between the East River and the Hudson River to sell you. But basically... That's what we were talking about with the surplus. We, there's another thing that I'm really fascinated with, Marx, and he talks about alienation, our disconnect from the products of our manual labor. If I work and I make this cup, I have a connection to it, and I could uh, kind of engage with my community, with my labor, I'm getting the full value of this if I traded this with another member of the community. However, if I am now working on a factory floor, and I am now uh, making, uh, doing one aspect of the cup, maybe I'm packaging it and I never see that cup and it gets sold to somebody else. And now they, they, um, they mark it up 2X of the labor that I put into this for the profit. Then there's a disconnection there. And that disconnection has now been translated, has been passed on to the community and I don't see where that labor went. I didn't see that it's gone into the shareholder value. And now there's an unhealthy balance in society. That's what I take away, took away from the alienation definition. And I think there are some other slight variations to that definition that I want to get more into at some point. But that speaks to this point. If you think that $694,000 in wealth magically appeared from investor value, from investing $1,000, suddenly you are worth more than the people who have worked on producing those items, then that's exploitation, my friends. 
And I, by the way, about the sale of that island, that island between the East and the Hudson Rivers, I just want to read something about that misconception. I grew up thinking that Manhattan was sold by the Indians. That's the words they used when I was younger. Uh, it's for $24. The Indians are actually the Lenape uh, indigenous people. Uh, those are the indigenous, the name of the indigenous tribe in Manhattan. Uh, but let me uh, read what I, what I found and what I kind of knew post my childhood education. <clears throat> and I quote, Historians have dissected the various accounts of land sales across 17th century New Amsterdam and have concluded that broad cultural differences in the understanding of property rights and ownership would have muddied what it really meant to sell land. Some historians have noted that land trading and ideas of private land ownership were not uncommon features in the economies of native peoples. But as well as that, land was more commonly understood as a space to be shared among different groups, or in some cases, leased between them. Less common was the idea that land might be sold and permanently relinquished to another group, which was the driving principle behind European ideas of property and ownership. The Dutch came with a certain idea about property that was not the idea of the indigenous people. Sanderson said, I'm not sure who Sanderson is. Sanderson said, and yet those agreements that were struck, those agreements that were struck in those early years in the 17th century are still the agreements that underlie all the titles in New York City today. To the Native Americans who signed the title deeds, it's likely that the documents represented an agreement that the Dutch could share the land or lease it for a limited period, which might also explain why the modest payment doesn't match the magnitude of what was seemingly being acquired by the Dutch. The trade may also have represented a guarantee of safe passage for the Dutch through the area. What's less likely is that the indigenous Manhattanites knowingly engaged in the irrevocable sale of their ancestral home. In this light, the real question becomes not so much whether the 1626 sale happened, but rather what it signified. And for that matter, the significance of any sale that took place in the 17th century, in 17th century New York. I don't think the exchange itself is in question. I think the meaning of that exchange is in question. Gorelick said, that's what, that's what Gorelick said. I don't know who Gorelick is either. It's probably early in this passage that I didn't quote. This raises, and I return to the passage, this raises the question of whether the purported sale of New York would even be legal in today's terms. And that was a quote that I lifted from livescience.com. And the article was Manhattan sold for $24. So, I mean, just on the face of it, if you're not a greedy capitalist, somebody gave you uh, something that you, you know, $24, whatever, if, if it's, you know, $24 back then, whatever it is today, it's a hundred thousand or million dollars. And they give you something the size of Manhattan located in a place like Manhattan. And you take that and then you uh, 
claim it as yours and kick all the residents off. And you realize that you've just, you just basically was highway robbery. The fact that you don't say, oh, no, this is not right, that your conscience doesn't appeal, that your moral compass doesn't uh, direct you, the fact that that happens alone is criminal. So whatever, I mean, even this passage is great, but the fact of the matter is that this is the theft of land. This is the occupation of land that was shared. You know, nature shows us how to share. The blueprint of nature you, you have animals living with animals. Yeah, yes, there's territorialism, but at the same time, it's not a territorialism in terms of greed. It's in terms of sustaining. So, yeah, so I just want to read that. Um, I don't want to dwell too much on this. We have a few other things to get to. So, um, yeah, you can go check out the article. If you have any thoughts, uh, please feel free to post them in our review on the podcast or on our YouTube channel. Okay, another thing I like to read, an objective word about affirmative action. There was this uh, uh, segment on CBS Sunday morning about affirmative action last Sunday, and um, it got me thinking. And it got me thinking about um, similar kind of um, ways of balancing competitive environments. So anyway, let me read on and I'll go into this. So I wrote... In case you didn't know, in all of our major sports leagues, the teams in last place pick first in the drafting of talent. This is done in order to maintain a competitive product. Well, think of affirmative action as a NFL draft or any league for that matter. And think of black people as the last place team. And think of the product as the United States of America. So, Basically, what I'm trying to convey there is that the argument against affirmative action is that you are discriminating against people who have uh, for no other reason than the color of their skin. The argument for affirmative action is that for a long time before uh, decades, centuries, in, our, in the case of Black people, that you have oppressed these people and they are now working from a disadvantaged start. So the idea that this is something that um, should be defended in terms of uh, maintaining the imbalance based on uh, how it affects an individual as opposed to the community is the argument here. So I want to give an example of where else does this happen and who's complaining about it. And you look at the draft, you know, the New England Patriots were for a couple of decades beating the hell out of the Jets. And they won many Super Bowls. They were a dynasty. And, you know, imagine if the New England Patriots <laughs> at the end of winning the Super Bowl or repeating a Super Bowl got to pick first in the next draft. <laughs> that's, basically, that's basically what people who are against affirmative action are saying, oh yeah, they should have as many rights to, let's have a lottery and everybody gets an equal shot at getting the best player. No, that does, it's, it's, I mean, it, you may accept and say that's fine, but what you're going to end up with is a, a, a product that's not competitive. You're going to lose money 
people are going to say, oh, I'm tired of supporting this. The, the New England Patriots, uh, the Patriots are using their their the, the power that they've already accumulated because they're such a great team. And now they're still picking the best players. And now the Jets are going to be forever saddled as a last place team. Um, so nobody accepts that. And these are billionaires who came up with these strategies, by the way. Yeah, because now the money's involved. So now it makes sense. But when it comes to uh, reparations for people who are not inside their group, uh, people of color, yeah, they you, all of a sudden it's fine and let's rid, get rid of this uh, uh, reshuffling of balance to make sure that we have a competitive product, which is the United States of America. So I'll leave that there. All right. I'm really vent. I'm really ranting today. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, hey, it is what it is. Channeling that anger, channeling that anger. All right. So the next thing I posted is when someone says America is not a racist country, I hear the voice of a privilege of which I cannot fathom. A privilege of not bearing the burden, not bearing the burden of the constant unearthing of the racist DNA that's tearing us all apart. And I want to I want to play a little quote from one of my favorite films of all time that kind of sums this up. Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. So, ignorance is bliss. Red pill logic. And that's the state of our country today. All right. Uh, another thing I posted is uh, I said, I'm not even half joking when I say most of these big tech founders won't be satisfied until they turn themselves into actual robots. Stop playing God. You all suck at it. And, um, you know, you got the technology is just on you know, you have AI here, artificial intelligence. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but again, with the following of the blueprint of nature and man trying to turn ro robots into intelligent beings so that they can say, I created a being and implanting themselves with chips that communicate with the brain, with the, with the paralyzed limbs. And I mean, on the surface, and if you look at these through a, a microscope, yeah, it looks like technology and it looks like progress. But, you know, zoom out. Take a bigger look at what's happening. Take a look at what's happening to our planet. And we had the fires in New York, my hometown, and from Canada, and you have the what's happening in the in the polls i mean where do i start where do i start the point of the matter is that this fool's goal that we call 
modern civilization. You know, we, we go back 500 years where we took a turn and we, what we look at as modernization is actually, can actually be killing us. And it literally is killing us. So what would have happened if we took a turn away from mercantilism and capitalism and the industrial revolution and towards a more uh, self-sustaining model, one in which we can find, which was happening with many of the indigenous peoples on this planet. Who knows what that world would look like? It is a world that I am trying to envision and imagine using the creative powers that mother nature has blessed to me. And yeah, it's, uh, I, I quoted after that on social media, you know, you Silicon Valley and the technology, and we have this uh, vision from, from Apple. Yeah. It all seems like crazy tech, but it ain't no tech like mother nature. And I posted that and that's a fact. We are all trying to create these as people, not me specifically, but as in general, people on a whole are trying to replicate what we see in Mother Nature. It's already there. Follow it. Look at it. Just, you know, work with it, not against it. I think that's the message here. That's the theme, the drumbeat that we will be sending out. Work with and in harmony with Mother Nature. And um, I, I, that brings us to the couple of podcasts, podcast time, podcast that I listened to this week. And um, one of the podcasts from Tech Won't Save Us, one of my favorite podcasts featuring, hosted by Paris Marx. I just caught on Paris Marx, Marxism. Hmm. Is he related? Got to find out. Anyway, I doubt it. Anyway, the tech tech won't save us. Paris Marx. And now one of the episodes posted that I listened to this week was titled The Dangerous Religion of Corporate Space featuring Mary Jane Rubenstein. And I want you to listen to this. Yeah, well, look, when the water protectors protesting the North Dakota Access Pipeline are saying, the, you know, water is sacred, what they're saying is you may not poison this water for the sake of profit, whether it's because there are spirits in the land or whether it's because the, you know, the element itself is alive or whether it's because the element itself is a, you know, is exists in kinship with um, other, other beings and human beings. The conviction that the more than human world is itself alive or is itself even sacred puts a limit on the extent to which humans can exploit that more than human world, right? Of course, humans can't live, nobody can live without making some kind of use of land, of making some kind of use of what we now call resources. But there is an immense distinction between living in a subsistence manner, taking what you need, and also giving back to the land so that it can regenerate itself, and living in a manner that prioritizes profit over everything else. And so it tries to maximize productivity and attacks the soil agriculturally and cuts down trees rather than using parts of them and, you know, clear cuts forests and removes mountaintops. tops. 
None of that from a subsistence standpoint is necessary. It's only necessary if you're privileging profit over everything else. So, yeah. And I posted uh, uh, this week that I am in search of a path to unplug, to unplug from the capitalist existence that we are all, me, I speak for myself, have been raised on, have become reliant on. I was thinking in terms of how do we survive? When you try to survive outside of the system, there's a consequence. You know, I mean, something as simple as a credit rating, something as simple as um, health insurance. These are things that are part uh, and wired into the system. And I am thinking of trying to find any little way for me to unplug. You know, do I need to use cash? Or do I used to use the rep the the represent the representation of fiat currency? Can we just use our time instead? Trade in our time, spending our time with our neighbors and having that be valuable. How do we create a market for that? So these are things that we are, I am um, kind of studying and practicing and reinventing and creatively discovering is that a word creatively discovering yeah i'll make it a word yeah creatively discovering making it a word there you go so um yeah in search of a path to unplug more on that later but i want to play another quote from uh, this uh, podcast dangerous uh religion of corporate space with jane hold on is this the same one uh yeah i think it is all right Here we go. It seems important to me also to um, branch out a bit and look into the world of fiction, of science fiction, of speculative fiction, particularly science and speculative fiction written by communities um, whose lands have been expropriated from them or who have been dispossessed from their own lands. So I'm thinking particularly of indigenous futurism, Afrofuturism, these genres that imagine and imagine very concretely other ways of building community rather than centering profit and exploitation. And third, I think it's important to listen to the exegesis, which is to say that like commentary on the Bible of like contemporary Christians, in particular, people like Pope Francis, who happens to have a very important job, who has said very clearly that the idea that humans dominate the earth is false. It is a false reading of scripture. It is inappropriate. It was, you know, done in the interests of nation states and it has done untold harm. The task of the Christian is to live in kinship. He actually uses this term brotherhood and sisterhood with the rest of the planet for the sake of the well-being of the entire planet, and particularly um, if we're talking about human beings of the poor on the planet. So it's like even Christianity itself in its most institutional form, which is to say the Roman Catholic Church, has moved on from this line of thinking, this line of thinking that says that it doesn't matter what we do to land, the line of thinking that says that humans are the most important thing on the planet. These are some of the places we can listen. And so it seems to me that those stories are kind of everywhere. You can find them everywhere. The question is how we figure out how to center them and how we figure out how to use them to approach our exploration of outer space in a different way. So yeah, there we go. Work in harmony with nature, not in contradiction with nature. So um, check it out. Uh, 
Tech Won't Save Us, great podcast. They also go into um, uh, a couple of episodes before into this idea of the uh, Silicon Valley community in terms of the billionaire community, uh, finding ways to, um, to extend, go beyond this life. I mean, I, you know, check it out. There's a podcast there. I'll put it in the show notes. I may be just completely butchering the, the, the topic of the podcast. So uh, yeah, there you go. So let's move on. Um, I also posted something. Uh, we had this crazy, crazy thing happen in New York City. I'm no longer in New York. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I am now based in Florida. And I would see the reports of the orange smog that invaded the Northeast and the Midwest and even came as far down as North Carolina. And I observed how similar it looked to the film Blade Runner, the scene in Blade Runner 2049, that is the latest Blade Runner. Uh, they had the location in uh, the movie that was based in a, a dystopian Las Vegas that was covered in this orange smog after a nuclear attack. And I saw the images, uh, courtesy of the Green Pointers, on uh, Instagram of Brooklyn. I was like, whoa, that looks exactly the same, pretty much exactly the same. So I posted it. Um, if you are not listening, if you're not looking at the video podcast on YouTube, I recommend you go to the show notes and have a look there or head over to our Instagram and have a look there. Uh, but the slides, uh, I put a side by side comparison uh, of the um, Blade Runner 2049 and Brooklyn. Sorry, the title Blade Runner or Brooklyn and um one of the things I posted as well this week was that Mother Earth has cancer. Oh, I don't believe it. I'm hearing a siren here in Florida. I probably heard a handful of those in the year and a half that I've been, that I've been here. Whereas in New York, it's an hourly occurrence. Anyway, siren is gone. Anyway, I posted uh, on the slide itself that, and also posted earlier uh, on the social media post, that Mother Earth has cancer. It's unmitigated economic growth. And if you can't, if you can't draw a straight line between what's happening, what happened with that orange smog and what happens with uh, consumerism and uh, profit first mentality, it was just mentioned there in the sound uh, bites that I pulled from Tech Won't Save Us. And you could see it here. And you, there will be more incidents like this, and it's unsustainable. And at some point, that may be, I mean, you look at places like China, India, where this is a more common occurrence. It will become a more common occurrence in other parts of the world as well. And if the earth has cancer, then we get cancer. They were saying that the levels of smoke in New York were like smoking a few packs of cigarettes a day, you know, just staying out there for, I can't remember how long it was, but yeah, there you go. So let me um, talk about time-based economics. And uh, I think we're going to be wrapping up here shortly. 
or maybe not. This may be one of the longer podcasts. It's actually well organized. This outline format, I'm really loving it, and I think I'm getting a bit carried away with it. So uh, maybe I may have to pull back on it a little bit or edit it down. But let's just roll with it for now and see how it goes. Another posting this week: time-based economics. There is a misconception, and I wrote, there is a misconception that there is little to no effort required to make a free sale, a misconception rooted in undervaluing the people's time. The resources required for free transactions mirror those required for paid transactions. Our free transactions currently range from $15 to $20 in value per transaction. The dollar saved, this is for the consumer now, from the consumer's point of view, the dollar saved minus the lost time opportunity cost of that consumer coming to pick up an item, plus the intangible long-term value of community building determines our customer closing ratio. So in other words, uh, will you take a half hour out of your day to come to the free Sunday market to pick up a $10 in items? Well, of course, that depends. If you really need the items and you don't have any fiat currency, then your time, uh, your value in terms of time might be worth it for you. But if you're flushed with fiat dollars, and even though you may be able to save, then you may, um, you may be able to save on getting it, from, uh, not paying fiat currency for it, it may not be worth it for you. Because in that hour or that half hour it takes for you to get there, you can achieve more value by um, doing something else. So that's what they call opportunity cost in business. So in other words, if that is out of balance, and it needs to be that way, because if that is out of balance, then either uh, the uh, vendor or the consumer is losing out. And our goal is to have a, a balanced market so that we are giving you enough value for your time and this is brand new so it's gonna uh, take many adjustments and a lot of tweaking but right now our average cost uh, average uh, value uh, per order uh, we limit it to three items per order per event is i would say around 12 13 dollars i haven't done the exact numbers yet but that's where uh, that's uh, where it looks like it's landing and, it, you know, in a place like Spring Hill, where the free shop is located, the Sunday market, I mean, it, it takes 15 minutes to get anywhere in this town, pretty much. It's not like New York, <laughs> not even close. It takes 15 minutes to get to my car in New York. <laughs> and um, so at that time, it takes you to get to the market and back. So you're take, talking about a half hour of your time. Um, could be less if you're doing many things at once. Anyway, the point is that this is the calculation that has to be made on both sides. And um, so people are under the conception that things are free. We're going to have a line around the block. No, not if you're doing it right. If you have a line around the block, then somebody's probably losing. It's not probably not sustainable. So I just wanted to put that out there um, to say uh, that, yes, uh, we need your feedback let you to find out we are talking to people. The, this, the numbers are growing every week. That's the good news. Uh, we uh, started small, a couple of people um, to maybe a handful of people. 
to you know a couple you know the last three or four weeks been a handful of people we had a bit of a spike uh for this uh coming sunday orders this week uh in the double digits uh, for the first time uh yeah that sounds like not a lot but it it means a lot because we're finding this balance and the idea is that if we can grow it with every market we will get to where we need to be to sustain this uh that being said we are sponsoring it uh, in-house and we will be reaching out we, we need sponsorship so the numbers are not there yet where we can talk to a local business and ask them to uh invest which is a dollar per uh, uh, transaction. So if somebody makes an order, that confirmation email will have a flyer that promotes a local sustainable or BIPOC business. And maybe it is worth it. Oh, but on average, it takes about seven uh, views, engagements to, uh, to close one transaction. Uh, so we are not there yet in terms of the numbers of people uh, we would need to get hundreds of people there as opposed to a handful of people there to really uh, start to test those numbers, but maybe not. We're going to be doing something with the um, plant expo again. We had a really, really, really good response with a few people that came through, and we're going to try to tie that in to incentivize and to increase the value of uh, the people who actually come and maybe use uh, that uh, platform as a smaller Anyway, I'm not going to get into the to the weeds with this, <laughs> but um, in a nutshell, uh, keep supporting. Uh, let's work to make this market work. It's about community. It's about community building, and that's the value. That's the intangible value that becomes the a part of the equation to for uh, our neighbors to calculate whether this is worth it for them or not. Okay. Let me see how many more I have here. So uh, this is the la second to last post that I'm going to talk about this week. And this is a post from Tech Won't Save Us Again. Uh, and the title of this podcast was The Influencer Industry is Built on Precarity, featuring an interview with Emily Hund. So let's uh, talk about that. Let's uh, highlight that right now. Users can choose to not look at content that they think is, you know, that content that is making them feel bad, <laughs> you know, content that they can suss out is, you know, providing money to brands that they don't agree with or things like that. You know, you can unfollow, you can look away, and you also can advocate for yourself on a political level as well and sort of and recognize that you are a part of this as well. If you're posting content, you are part of the reason that these platform companies have so much value. So, um, yeah, so that's going back to the, in the community and how the surplus and how that's all extracted. And we spoke about this in the previous episodes where the time, the time is your time is being monetized by big tech, but the compensation is not being sent to you. It's being sent to other corporations, other Wall Street individuals. So when you spend your time on Facebook, they are monetizing that by throwing you ads uh, uh, through an uh, ad agency that's advertising another product from a big tech company, hoping that they will convert your views into sales. 
So what we're doing here at Spreading the Free Market is we are here to empower and to create a market on behalf of the neighbors of the community. Because that time, yes, is valuable. But that value is being sent away and out of the community. What we are telling, what we are doing is letting these ad agencies and these Wall Street, whatever they are, to know that we have people who have their attention based on the free items that now you, big corporation who's looking to advertise, will now pay the community for as opposed to paying another ad agency. And this uh, podcast, Tech Won't Save Us, kind of touches on that, the influencers. In a way, it's been done on one level, but it's still happening with ad agencies are uh, paying them. Yes, yeah, so they are paying the community. Uh, but how do we now create a market where it's not an individual? So there's no empowerment really going on there. It's still through social media. They still pull the strings. Let's create a community where this attention collectively can be leveraged against uh, Wall Street and towards and against big capitalism. And um, it was actually a good podcast overall. Overall, uh, those uh, people who know me in my previous life, which uh, I don't think many people from um, my current uh, world knows, is uh, we were one of the first influencers um, in Tech Won't Save Us, they discussed this as a first tier of influencers, the videographers. This is before the iPhones, this is before even the many of the, it was at the time they had the Panasonic DVX. That was a camera I used. Um, this is before any of the uh, uh, consumer friendly uh, recording devices. And what happened is once the technology reached to a point where social media can, you could just pick up your phone and record something and social media monetize that, you know, the original uh, influencers, I, and I hate using that word because at the time we were just, uh, we were blogging, they called it blogging, video blogging. And um, us bloggers at that time, we were just doing it because we loved it and we weren't looking for likes. And I wasn't, we wasn't ourselves youtube wasn't ready for um they couldn't handle the bandwidth and we would have created our own platform our own uh, video hosting platform that was uh, you know independent uh, and that's where we would show our videos all the videos you see now if you search uh, uh, our name on youtube you will see uh videos on youtube but those are the second posting that's a reposting many many years after we had it on a website called the newpop.com uh, and um you know it's it's there so you can see the videos you can see the world that we came from um you know, i shared them but now you know it's, it's it's a lot of videos a lot of videos this is from the years 2005 to 2010 what i call the golden age of social media myspace what up myspace anyway uh, let's we're gonna have to wrap this up this is this is a long one wow this is really gonna be a long broad, broadcast but let's uh let's start to wrap it up so anyway head over to tech won't save us paris with paris marks and uh the title of that podcast is the influencer industry is built on precarity with emily hund all right so where are we i want to ask answer a question uh buzzcast had a question I love Buzzcast. 
It's what we use for our hosting, for our audio podcast. And they introduce a segment where they ask the users uh, questions about podcasting or, or whatever. Uh, and this is the pet question this week. What is the podcast that got you into podcasting? All right. Great question. And that actually ties into what I was uh, speaking about earlier. Uh, let me go way back. The first podcast. And we knew, going back to 2005, we knew about podcasting. Um, but it was this RSS feed thing where you have to um, sign up for, go to a website, and they would push content. I don't know if anybody's familiar with RSS feeds. I, I'm still not as familiar, but I remembered when I figured it out and somebody showed me how to do it. I said, oh, wow, this is cool. So you mean it'll push it out to me? I can't remember how I received it, whether it was, whether it was by email or just a post. Anyway, but yeah, at the time, uh, podcasting, and I don't remember what the first, very first podcast I listened to, but the first one I remember that sticks in my head was a video podcast, actually. And it stuck in my head because I was also uh, doing video. And uh, videographers back then, when we started as influencers, uh, we were filmmakers. We came out of the filmmaking world. I worked in film for many years before that um, on commercial sets and music videos. And the reason that I launched my videographer a website, which was called the Video Magazine at the time, the new pop sensation, was we needed to find a way to give uh, musicians and um, artists a visual platform to express themselves without spending ten dollars and $20,000. That was the budgets for a low-budget uh, uh, production. And this is where it started from. So I remember I would always look at other filmmakers and see what they were doing, especially locally. And there's this one called Four-Eyed Monsters, uh, which was a video podcast that was shot actually in my neighborhood in Williamsburg, South Williamsburg. And um, I would follow them. And that was the first video podcast I remember today. I'm sure there were others that I am not remembering. But um, it was a cool podcast that was picked up by, I think, the IFC. It was a crazy story. I went to their opening night. And um, it was, yeah, check it out. The Four-Eyed Monsters. Anyway, but for, as for the first podcast that um, I that launched me in terms of podcasting myself, uh, it was during the pandemic, and it was a podcast uh, that was started as a that I started uh, looking at as a magazine called Courier Weekly. Um, I, I think there was a couple of local entrepreneurs, a Celsius uh, local cafe slash laundry, very cool concept, and they were featured. And I saw that they were featured on Instagram, and I I found Courier Weekly through them. Um, and then uh, during the pandemic, they launched, they started launching podcasts. And I think this was the first podcast that I listened to. And it was crazy because looking back now, they were doing like one every other day. <laughs> like, wow, they're not doing it anymore. That might be part of the reason. Like that's production. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm a hell of an editor and um, I, I'm, I get a lot of stuff out. And, um, but yeah, one every other day and it was quality quality podcast like every other day at least once a week i think almost a couple of times a week bi-weekly anyway but uh that was the one that got us started and we started with uh we started after the uh 
uh, George Floyd protest. Uh, a few months in after that, I uh, said, well, maybe I could do this. I think I could do what they were doing. I have the video background, the editing background, but podcasting seemed like such an alien thing. Like, well, it's as much experience being flown around the world to shoot video and constantly editing. It still was intimidating to me. Uh, but I said, let me do my first. And thanks to platforms like Mike Bikes, who's providing the mic here and the sound and the mixers and all that stuff. Uh, he really walked me through the audio because he was a um, the, the Jason from Mike Bikes was an audio guy. And that I don't think without him, I would have been able to do that first podcast. But yeah, we did it. It was called uh, it was Give Me the Loop. They give me the loop. Give me the loop. Give me the loop, which is a biggie uh, reference. Um, I'm sweating like crazy. Um, and also, we have a big reference with the current name, Spread Love Free Market. Spread love, it's a Brooklyn way. Same thing, you know. Is it the same song? No, it's not. Oh, give me the loop. Give me the loop. Give me the loop. So anyway, that was the first one. Give me the loop. I think it still might be out there somewhere. So if you get a chance to listen to it and it's still there, uh, go right ahead. Activist Lounge, it's a second iteration of it. But yeah, I'm glad I did it. I am uh, now um, here. It's still hard. You know, this is going on three years in and um, I feel like I'm just starting to find a rhythm, my voice, a, a, a blueprint for getting these episodes out. So, um, yeah. And uh, yeah, check out Budcat, uh, check out Buzzsprout. And uh, yeah. All right. So um, I think that's it for this week. Oh, yeah. I got one more thing. One more thing I must declare. When I say spread love, neighbor, is that what? You? Anyway, that's a rap I've been working on. <laughs> I'm not a rapper, but I was rapping. So finally, I want to talk about something that's very cool. Um, I also posted uh, the blueprint for our survival can be found in nature and in our music. I had a list uh, uh, scrolling on social media this week. Uh, I'm always listening to great live musical clips. And this week, courtesy of, and I, again, I have to write down, I write down so many names for this podcast every week. But sometimes I forget some, and um, but I'll put it in the show notes. But I found a podcast with a live clip from Sammy Davis Jr., Berlin, 1972, performing Mr. Bojangles. And it was so beautiful, so moving. It's such an incredible story and told by an incredible artist. And, um, you know, I've posted all type of things, De La Soul. I, I, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, recent post, Tina Turner, recent post. What's the one that I, re anyway, the point is um, I'm always posting stuff because music, it really does allow you to express yourself, express pain, to express love. And um, the genres for me, there's no limit to genre. If it moves you, it moves you. And I've always loved the song, but I don't think I've seen a performance and to see Sammy Davis embody the song in movement uh, was something to behold. So if you are listening to the podcast, I really recommend you head on over right now to our YouTube channel and I'm going to play a clip. And the reason I want to play this clip is Father's Day is coming up next week. And by the way, we have a Father's Day special 
to create your own digital card and uh, check that out. We will be ending the production on that in a few days. So you want to get in on that. But anyway, I um, the song moved me so much and I just had to share it with somebody other than my my uh, social media followers who never like my stuff anyway. <laughs> but I, I went over, I'm here in Florida taking care of my folks and I took the phone and I showed it to my dad and played the song for him, uh, knowing that he loves beautiful music and he knows Sammy Davis Jr., but he may not know the specific song and he didn't. So I played it for him and yeah, same thing happened to him, which happened to me is that you get very emotional because it's such a moving story. And my dad broke down. There's stuff going on here. Uh, the health of uh, my mom is not, is, uh, I don't want to get into it, but we've been through a lot. And it was a release of emotion um, that uh, I will, I think I will remember for a long time. And um, the song, it's, it's like a, the happiest sad song I've ever heard. It's a combination of two. And listen to the words, listen to the story. And um, since that day, my dad's been asking me to play it over and over here in uh, the, the, the shared radio that we have, radio phone. I say radio like it's old timey. But um, yeah, so it's been a special moment. It's a special song. And I'd like to share it for you right now. So until next time, thank you for joining. And we'll take you out with Sammy Davis Jr., Mr. Bojangles. I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you In worn-out shoes With silver hair, a ragged shirt, and baggy pants He would do the old soft shoe He could jump so high, jump so And then he'd lightly touch down I met him in a cell In New Orleans I was Well I was down and out He looked to me to be The very eyes of age As he spoke right out Talked of life, talked of life. Laughed, slapped his biggest step. He said his name was Bojangles, then he danced a lick. Right across the cell, he grabbed his pants, took a better stance, jumped up high. That's when he clicked his heels And then he let go a laugh Lord, he let go a laugh Shook back his clothes all around That was Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bull 
Come back and dance, please, Bojangles. Come back and dance, Mr. Bojangles. 